I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. This is episode 25, Is There Such a Thing as Catholic Economics? Father Brad Elliott, it's great to have you here today. Hello. Thank you, David. Hello. Um, now, I just want to introduce uh, to people who are watching and listening, Father Brad Elliott is a Dominican priest out of the Western province. Um, we came across each other because uh, I live here uh, in Berkeley and Father uh, was based in Oakland for many yeah. years, just down the road. Um, and I believe also that when we became reacquainted, I didn't know we were being reacquainted. You saw me years, 10 years ago or something, speaking in Los Angeles, where you're from originally. Yes, in Los Angeles is where I was first introduced to your work on Catholic culture and beauty and art. I uh, had the, the privilege of sitting in on one of your lectures regarding the trends of modern art and iconography, um, particularly, particularly uh, you know, the Catholic, uh, Catholic liturgical art and iconography. Uh, and I was actually blown away by the idea. It was, exa it was exactly, ex exactly what I had been um, kind of intuiting for a long time. And now the ideas that you had kind of sown in those, those lectures, I have, uh, I've just, I've continued to follow, I've continued to follow. And so I really appreciate the work. Well, no, no, it's great. And I'm so glad that um, this, that happy accident, if we can call it, that allowed us to be acquainted because um, what we're going to talk about today is an, another aspect of common interest. It really emanates, I think, from the same thing, this interest in culture and society um, and all different aspects of it. But this really is about economics and Catholic social teaching, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a, an aspect of moral teaching, is, is what Absolutely. you think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and what we're going to, to do today is uh, talk about one thing, the, the idea of whether or not there, is, there can be a Catholic economics. It, it is, would a Catholic study this in yeah. a way that is um, peculiar to the faith, shall we say, mm -hmm. and would, would, would they practice it differently? So, yeah. um, so, Father, why is this an important question? Surely Catholics have to approach everything as a Catholic. And why is this something we need to think about? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Catholics, a, a, a faithful Catholic or a faithful Christian can never approach any discipline and simply bracket off their worldview. Nobody can do this. Every Catholic would approach their discipline as a Catholic. Uh, so the real question, I mean, it's an important question. Is there a Catholic economics? Would the adjective Catholic alter economics? Would the adjective Catholic actually add to economics? Does it change economics? Um, does economics performed, practiced by a Catholic, mutate into something else that it otherwise would not be? Um, now, that, that's a very important question. Why is this an important question? Because as, as Catholics, we are, we are called to use all of the means at our disposal to promote the gospel, to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the promotion of that gospel is 
not simply transmitting information to other people, but it's also we are, we are to use our agency in the world to create a world where the conditions for the gospel can be lived out, to create a world uh, that is, to use the gospel image, the fertile soil for the gospel, to create a culture which is fertile soil for the, for the, the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Now, to do that, to create that culture, that is fertile soil for the reception of the gospel. This has everything to do with art. It has everything to do with education. It has everything to do with music, but also it has everything to do with economics. Economics is a, is a tool that we are, we are increasingly realizing in our world how powerful this tool is for creating a culture where the conditions for the reception of the gospel are are uh, are met or 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 prevail and so well, is there a catholic economics well, okay uh first of all <laughs> let's say yes yes and no yes and no i'm a, I'm a dominican so I, I the saying seldom never deny seldom affirm always make a distinction always distinguish. distinctions are so important so the first thing i do is, is distinguish well yeah yes i would say yes and no there's a catholic economics um First, no, there's not a Catholic economics. Um, and to answer the question or to explain why, to, to, to explain no, why there's not a Catholic mm -hmm. economics, uh, I think <clears throat> is rooted in a, the deeper relationship between faith and reason and how nature and grace, faith and reason even, even work uh, or right. the, dynam the dynamic thereof, how they, how they uh, cooperate with one another. Um, we would never say, for example, uh, is there a Catholic mathematics? Is there a Catholic mathematics? Is there a Catholic biology? Yeah. Meaning, meaning uh, would, would, would biology or mathematics or chemistry done by a Catholic somehow be different than biology, mathematics, or chemistry performed by a non-Catholic? Would the fundamental rules of mathematics be different? If it was a Catholic who was who's practicing mathematics, would would the rules, the laws of chemistry, somehow change if the chemistry was performed by a Catholic? Now, of course, asking that question is ridiculous. We would say, of course not, of yeah. course, not. because the discipline of mathematics, the discipline of chemistry, the discipline of engineering mm -hmm. or physics, these these disciplines have an intelligibility all on their own naturally. That There's is. a natural intelligibility that does not require divine revelation to understand yes. or does not require the gift of grace in order to assent to truths that we could otherwise not know on a natural level. Right. So are we saying then that economics is the same sort of discipline as those ones that you listed? Mm. No, economics is not the same sort of discipline as, as one of the hard sciences. It's, it simply is not. It's, it's not, it's, uh, in, in a modern, modern parlance, we would say it's one of the softer sciences. I mean, and it does have, it does indeed have predictive power. Mm. Economics has predictive power. Economics is observational. So you observe how people behave. You observe the conditions behind people's behavior. You observe the, uh, that network of incentives and disincentives that groups and aggregates of people are always responding to. And you do have a certain predictive power in uh, the economic 
discipline. Economics has, a, has, a, has, a, has an ability to predict how people will behave in an aggregate. It does not have, however, the necessity that comes along with something like uh, mathematics or the hard natural sciences. What's, when, you, when you use the word necessity, could you explain that a little bit? What, that um, you, you seem um, to be using it in a technical way there. Yeah, yeah, a, a necessity in the sense that uh, uh, true, true, true knowledge or sciencia in the classical sense of the word would be uh, knowledge, knowledge of of, of necessary, ne necessary, necessary things that flow essentially from their causes. Um, uh, I could uh, just in terms of uh, in terms of a, of a simple syllogism, for example, the syllogism or a logical syllogism can give us true knowledge because we'll have two premises and a conclusion which flows necessarily from those premises. Oh, okay. Which flows necessarily from their, those premises. So in mathematics, for example, in mathematics, we know necessarily that a triangle has internal angles that add up to 180 degrees mm. this is this is necessary um and we but the human persons by natural reason can understand the necessity there therein there's a necessary it doesn't it doesn't require any persuasion it's a, it's a the, the mind immediately sees that as a necessary conclusion from the premises right whereas in something like economics uh, sociology, the humanities, psychology, for example, uh, these disciplines do indeed give us an ability to predict how human beings are going to behave in the aggregate, but they do not carry with them the, the weight of necessity mm -hmm. the way that hard science would. Uh, they, they, give us, they give us power to predict uh, probabilities, the probability that the aggregates of people will behave in a certain way. Okay, so I think we'll come back to the nature of that predictability and the degree to which um, th there is power for the economist to predict um, a, a little later. But uh, before we do that, um, what I think I, I want to do is talk about then um, how, how can there be, you gave us a yes and no, so you've given us the no, how can there be a Catholic economics? In which way uh, might a Catholic then um, approach economics differently from others? Which is you seem to be suggesting there's some way in which it's yeah. relevant. It's easy. It's easier, of course. I use the example of the hard sciences. It's very easy for me to use the example of the hard sciences and then apply that to economics. By okay. Because the hard science, it's, it's easy to it's easy easy to kind of have an intuitive sense of this relationship in the hard sciences. And I'll use biology, for example. Um, uh, is there a Catholic biology? Well, of course, being a Catholic doesn't change biology. It doesn't, <laughs> uh, being a Catholic doctor wouldn't fundamentally change the, the rules of medicine. However, what we can say this is there's a relationship between means and ends. Uh, a biologist can understand to, 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 a, to a remarkable degree the workings of, of the human body. But biology as a discipline in itself does not provide its own end for that knowledge. A biologist can use the knowledge of, a, of the workings of the human body to do great good or to accomplish great evil. Mm. Uh, a, a Catholic biologist, a Catholic doctor would use his knowledge 
for the end of promoting the health and well-being of the human persons. And what the Catholicism provides is a very clear and defined end to the biological science. The biology medicine would be a means to what his Catholicism would provide as an end. Right. Translate this to economics. Translate this to, to, to economics. The laws of supply and demand do not become different when a Catholic studies economics. The price mechanism does not become different if, if uh, the price mechanism is studied by a Catholic. Yeah. But these economic realities, economic forces, uh, these, the, the economic, uh, uh, the, the mechanisms that give us power of predictability, yeah. can be used by a Catholic as a means to an end of promoting Catholic culture. And they're very powerful means. Yeah. It's a powerful means because economics, as it has developed in the last three or four hundred years, uh, has has developed uh, a, a, a remarkably powerful ability to predict how human culture and human society will behave and respond to incentives, to true economic incentives, price incentives, supply and demand incentives. Uh, these things are, are real. And the Catholic economist, the Catholic economist can use these realities in the promotion as means as means to the promotion of the end of a truly catholic culture or a culture which is fit for the reception of the gospel right and so we can't escape therefore one assumes um considerations which are not always that common i'm thinking for in economics once we get into the um the end the, the mm -hmm. catholic realm things such as freedom and faith and the impact that these have um not just on the culture and on, on the um on the propagation of the gospel but on the economic sphere as well it, you can't it must work its way back into it I, i'm assuming um so um now we, we and these are issues we're going to explore one hopes uh, in future uh, discussions um so let's Let's go um, back then to the predictability of it. Um, this immediately, in conversations I've had, makes some uh, Catholics feel uneasy. Um, if you treat yeah, it to yeah. the degree we treat it as a science, you say it's a soft science, mm -hmm. aren't we um, ignoring the fact that we're dealing with people who have free will and really do not respond to conditions as mechanically as, um, as, as, a, as though they're conforming to a scientific law. That's the whole point about free will. It doesn't behave in that way. So how then can there be a predictability in economics um, without, uh, if we can't predict the behavior of people so precisely? That's a, that's a very very good question. This is precisely the objection that a lot of very, very well-meaning Catholics and Christians have to the, the use of something like economics and the promotion of Catholic culture. So that, that the, human, the human person is beyond predictability. Well, yeah, I mean, again, I'll make a distinction. Yes, yes, and no. Certainly, every, each, each, human, each human agent is, is free. Each individual human agent is free to... Uh, to make decisions on, on their own, decisions personally, decisions for their family, decisions for their community. And every individual agent is to a large degree beyond the ability of any other to predict. 
But however, the human person as a free agent is not an arbitrary agent. Mm. Human behavior is free, but freedom precisely does not mean arbitrary. Freedom yes. does not mean that human beings act in ways that are completely uncaused or act in ways that, that have absolutely no intelligibility mm. to them whatsoever. Human beings are free, but through their freedom, their ability to respond to the incentives around them, their ability to, uh, to recognize the good around them and respond to the incentives around them in a way which is perfective of themselves and brings them to their own good and the good of their family and the good of their community. This gives their behavior an intelligibility that we can understand. Uh, and especially when it comes to the yeah. average, you add multiple people together. You have, uh, when you have uh, 10 individuals, 100 individuals, thousands, <laughs> 10,000, a million individuals that are, that are each operating for their own flourishing, that yes. are each operating freely for the betterment of themselves and the betterment of their community, uh, the, the power of uh, science like economics to predict the general trends that will prevail and emerge, I should say, emerge out of the, out of the, the order becomes far more powerful. So this, is, this introduces this idea, which um, I think it was Hayek coined the phrase of, of the spontaneous order was the phrase he used. And it's a, it's a bit of a mystery, really. Um, it's what it's saying is we, do, we can't tell what the, the components that comprise that society, I'm using that in an impersonal way, the people who contribute to that society yeah. um, actually are going to behave but it seems that when we look at the whole, mm -hmm. and, and the greater that whole is, the more we can see a logic to what they're doing. Um, yeah. And he called that a spontaneous order. Now, immediately, I um, react to, to hearing this when I first said that, well, I, this is really what culture is. It's, um, this is not the economist looking necessarily uh, at the society, but when I look at it, uh, without um, putting on any sort of economics hat at all, um, we, um, I think in common with just about everybody, we intuit this, this fact because we, yes. we characterize groups of people by their collective behavior. Yeah. Um, I have no idea what characterizes um, French culture <laughs> by observing one French person. I need to look at the whole French nation and possibly over centuries <laughs> by looking at their history. And the, the more I'm able to do that, um, then the, the more accurately I'm going to get an idea of what it is that binds these people together, what the logic is of being French. But nevertheless, I do that naturally on my first trip to the, the Parisian cafe. I'm immediately discerning this at some, mm -hmm. some level. Well, when we think about this, David, you're absolutely right. The very idea that we even have the descriptor, French culture, French yes. cuisine, French art. Uh, this, this describes what is an emergent order, an emergent order, which is culture, which isn't contained fully in any one individual French person. It's yeah. not contained, it's, it's, realized, it's realized in each individual French person, but the aggregate 
the aggregate of all of the French throughout all of you know, the history of France or the history of Italy or the history of England, the, there's an emergent order which we call culture mm. that no one individual person ever sat down and established or created. Culture was never at first contained in one person's mind and then imposed on the aggregate of French people. It was an emergent order that, uh, that arose when you have thousands and thousands of French people interacting with each other throughout history and create a type of, yeah. of expression of their humanity that was unique to that, that community. Okay, so let's bring this back to the economic sphere saying, okay, we, we think we can uh, see some patterns. We don't know precisely what the, the individuals are doing who are within the economy that we're looking at, the, 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 the nation, perhaps a national economy or something. Um, but we can see certain patterns that allow us to say what, uh, on the whole, is going to happen to that economy. And therefore to some degree, how that will then um, impact the people within it. Absolutely. Now, Absolutely. To, to what degree can we do this? Because I know this is a contentious area. So if we were talking to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, a Chicago school economist, they love mathematics and predicting things mathematically. The Austrians yeah. say, no, we can't do that. Is, is this right? So there's a, there's a disagreement about how scientific if i can use that word we can be in this mm -hmm. yeah there, there there are disagreements among the economic schools about the degree to which any one economist could actually predict what will happen in any economy uh, at, at uh at one time um but uh i i know more Personally, I, I'm more familiar with the Austrian school than I am with the Chicago school. I, I certainly love Friedrich Hayek. That's fine. Focus on the on the the Austrian because that's where my interest is. I was just producing the other one as a contrast. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I love Milton Friedman a lot. I love the work the work of Milton Friedman, but uh, I'm more familiar with Hayek. Hayek's great insight, particularly von Mises, the, of uh, Ludwig von Mises, the in the insight. Um, that, that the Austrian school fundamentally brings to economics is that the information that is contained in this emergent order, which we call the economy, or in, in your case, culture, this information is not, and by definition, could never be contained in one planner, in one mm -hmm. central mind that understands the whole system, but most, most of all, plans the emergent order and imposes an order on the aggregate. The order by necessity only emerges through the, the aggregate of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of agents acting freely for their own fulfillment, for their own human flourishing. And out of that aggregate, throughout the, scattered throughout the system is the information that is of use in the creation of the emergent order. Right. So, um, we can make certain predictions about the, the whole. Yes. But, we, but at the moment you, you try and do that by directing specifically, mandating the behavior of the people, we, 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 we simply don't understand that connection well yeah. enough in the to actually be able to control it in that way. 
yeah, the Austrian insight is that not only, not only is the emergent order fundamentally not controllable, but if one agent tried to control it, they would actually destroy the order. The order yes. itself would be compromised. And the, they would actually, they would actually so, um, so disinformation in the, uh, so the seeds of disinformation within, within an emergent order that itself can only contain the, the uh, information of the order. And so for, I mean, we, we could have any, any number of individual examples. We can predict, we can predict that if the, you know, if the price of, if the price of labor goes up, the supply of, of, of labor will, will go up as well. But we could never, we could never predict what any individual, in any individual worker in, a, in, a, in one economy would do. Right. And so this, this is the leap of faith with a little uh, leap of trust that maybe I could, is that we have to be ready, if what you're saying is correct, to let people be free, which means we, can't, um, we, we, we have to assume that generally people know what's best for them mm -hmm. um, and that that actually is going to be the optimal for the, for the common good, for most people as well. It, it will contribute to what is best for all others. And in some ways that's counterintuitive. It depends on your, your sort of makeup. But if you're the sort of person, as I certainly can tend to be at times, I want to get in there and, you know, control things. I, I, I'm not happy just to let events work their way through. It makes me anxious that it's not going to go the way I want. But the paradox of this is that by giving people freedom it seems to give us the best result that's is that fair um i i certainly think it's it's fair i certainly think that's fair because precisely because of the insight that the, the emergent order cannot be controlled it precisely must emerge from the aggregate yes the order must emerge from the aggregate uh, and also when it in, in this sense in this sense i think that uh, the catholic faith or a catholic worldview um, is not only consonant with this, but can actually promote this, this idea or this concept precisely because we do not believe it, within our Catholic tradition that there's fundamentally an opposition between the individual good and the common good. Yes. But there is fundamentally not an alienation between the individual and the community in the sense that if the individual is acting for his own flourishing, this will, by definition, subtract from the flourishing of the commons right. or if the individual is acting for his own betterment or in you know, classical economic terms if the individual is acting in for his own self-interest this necessarily means that he is somehow depriving the community of of the benefits of his his labor he's depriving the community of something that either either he's acting for himself or he's acting for others he can't both be doing the same at the at one and the same time but they, from the catholic perspective from the Catholic perspective, a true Catholic uh, metaphysics of the common good, I would certainly say built upon the, the, the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, the common good is not a bonum alienum or a, a, a separate good that's separate from the good of the individual. But every individual in acting for his own human flourishing is by that definition contributing to the common good. Right, now that is a, is a subject that we, I think we owe we can devote a whole discussion to at some point because I have a feeling that what you just said there is going to surprise some people. And 
probably people who hope that what you say is true, but deep down they wonder if it is. Um, this is very hard. This is, this is a this is very hard. This is a bone of contention for a lot of people, particularly particularly Catholics that have such a clear idea of what Catholic culture is going to be. Yeah, they have such a clear idea, and in fact, such a high ideal of Catholic culture, we understand that there's this huge buffer between where culture is and where we want it to be. So if we want to get culture to where we want it to be, this has to be imposed. This has yes. to be by fiat. We have to somehow, we have to somehow use coercive power to take culture where it is right now and bring it to where we want it to be. Coercive or manipulative or whatever, you know, soft or hard. We need to impose it. I, yeah, I agree. And yeah, part of me feels that. Here. There is an insight because human beings are fallen. We are fallen yeah. creatures. And one of the effects of the fall is that oftentimes our own self-interested behavior does become, in the pejorative sense, selfish behavior. It does. That's a truth. And Catholics are very sensitive to this. <laughs> Catholics are very sensitive to this. Uh, um, well, and, and, and my, my project, my whole project my, in my, in what I would say is a Catholic, e economic, a Catholic, what is it? What is a Catholic economics is how can a Catholic not somehow coerce individuals into behaving like Catholics or, or force them to behave like Catholics through the force of law or through, uh, through the fiat of a king, but how would we create a culture and an economy where trustworthiness and virtue and self selfless behavior is incentivized mm. and selfish behavior is disincentivized so i think this is where we we overlap a lot because mm -hmm. my interest is in incentivizing them by love is really saying that it's the beauty of the faith that is which speaks really of the beauty the beauty of god mm -hmm. um, and when we see that um, shimmering, as we might say, radiating from the culture, um, people will, it, it speaks of its source, which is God, and people desire it, they want it. And this, again, impacts upon freedom, because a true freedom is not just license, that, that is an aspect of it, lack of constraint. We can't, we don't, it's not either or, but it, it includes that, but also that the freest person is one who knows how how to use that um, lack of constraint well. In other words, understands the end for which right. he was made and willingly chooses it. Right. And the faith is, is crucial for this because we, without that, we, we, we can't know that fully. That's right. Well, no, you're, you're absolutely right on what, what it means for the human person to actually be free. Certainly a condition of freedom is the lack of external constraint. This would be mm -hmm. a condition. Yes. But the, the, true, the true person that acts freely does not simply act arbitrarily without any external, mm. any external boundaries on his action. The true, the true free person acts for an end, and the movement towards that end of the true free person is a movement that comes from within. And, and that movement is love, ultimately. This is, this is, to, to, this is exactly right. Is, it is love. And the human person moved by beauty and love and goodness is a person that is not moved by coercion. Yes. Is the, the true free human person has to move towards his ultimate fulfillment, towards his good, through his own desire for the goodness and the beauty and the love of that end, which is ultimately God, 
that he sees. It's, it fundamentally, by definition, cannot be something imposed on the human person by coercion, uh, by external coercion. Um, it would no longer be, it would no longer be true human action in that sense. Yes. And you can't make, it's, it's the old sort of childish fancy, then I could make that person love me. You know? Yeah. It, 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 so, I mean, you see this going on in relationships all the time, but of course, mm -hmm. the moment you do so, it's not love. And, and so that's why it's dissatisfying. And that's, God doesn't make us love him, so we, we can't do it with others either. We can't make others love God. So, um, and my belief is that if we want a beautiful culture, um, that we must respect the freedom of people, that, that if there is a role for government, it is to regulate, to allow for the flourishing of human freedom. So that does not mean that it's inactive or it, it's, it's not acting to, to, in a, such a way that uh, permeates everybody's lives, but it, but it does so in a way that allows people to flourish as free agents. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, this is why they will immediately, David, during, if, if, if people are listening to this conversation, they will immediately be... Um, those naysayers that say, well, you're just being a libertarian. You just think the government, you just let, you, you want complete license, you, but that's not true. And that, no. that's, not, that's not true. There is, there is an essential place for coercive power, the coercive power of government and society. That, that power needs to exist in order to, to enforce and create the conditions of human freedom. Uh, like for example, the, the rule of law, the rule of contract, the enforcement of private property, which is all the conditions that allow the human person to freely act as his own agent in society towards his own good. And of course, power, coercive power is very powerful. If I can yes. be redundant, I'm being, being redundant there. It's not that the government is not necessary. It's not that government is not essential. It's that the government possesses a type of power. It's a type of power. It moves human agents by a type of power, which is very different than the human agent being moved by his own internal desire for beauty. Yes. This is why your project in promoting Catholic culture through beauty is so important because only when the human person sees the beauty of the Catholic faith, the beauty of embracing a, a friendship with God through, through the Catholic church, and he sees the beauty of that, and the attractiveness of that, the fundamental attractiveness of that, the human person is going to be moved by his own spontaneous freedom. And he's going to be moved by a spontaneous freedom that is also at the same time self-interested behavior. Which again, that's going to set up warning signals. I, know, I, know. I agree with you. And this there's is people, there, there's about there's about a thousand people out there that there's yeah. <laughs> uh, the place of self-interest, self-love desire for happiness and the desire for God. We're, this is something we're going to return to in a future discussion because this is crucial, I think, yes. to, um, to our understanding of why what you're describing is so good uh, and so, so, much, so really in harmony with the Catholic understanding of the world. Now, what, what I'd like to do is, is just um, come back and look, think about this spontaneous order and uh, the, the, that we can recognize as um, valid in economics. It allows us some predictive power. So we can say that if we give people freedom, um, then that will be the, we believe that's the optimum for human flourishing. 
-hmm. and as a as uh, in conformity with that maybe not the maximum economic flourishing but the best that is in harmony with the full flourishing of the human person that is our our belief now i'm going to say suggest something here just a bit of personal speculation but one of the things that strikes me about traditional mathematics um in contrast to the way that the modern scientist, the modern natural scientist uses it. The modern scientist analyzes, uh, and I, I'm pro-science. I did science at university. I am so glad I live today. The wonders of technology, as we were discussing, allow me to talk to you, even though you're um, miles away from me. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I think technology and advances in science are wonderful. But largely, that has been done through a particular um, form of analysis, looking at the world around us and uh, breaking it down into its component parts. And the assumption is that if I know what each part does, then I can tell what the aggregate does. It's just the vector sum mm. of the parts. Mm. Now, that is very powerful yeah. in particular sorts of discipline. Um, and very powerful to an extent, um, even in, in other areas, but it has its limits. Um, because, as we said in the human sciences, um, this just doesn't seem to work. The, the, the sum of the parts, the vector sum, is not the, <laughs> it's not the whole. There's this sort of mis mystery as to how they all add up. Mm -hmm. And the secret of this is something that I think even natural science is now beginning to become aware of because they realizing that as they get deeper and deeper mm -hmm. into the analysis of the physics of the things, actually the, the particles right at the bottom of it, I'm going to say quarks, I, I, don't, I, I think that's still the smallest body, the, the way they behave is not, if you added it all up, you could look at the, the statistical mathematics and you get the behavior of the whole, but there's, again, they don't really understand how the actual quark behaves in relation to the whole. That they can observe what happens and see mathematically that this contributes to it. But there is a bit of a mystery there too. Now, I don't, I don't want to go too far into that. But what I'm going to say is that when the ancients looked at the cosmos, mm. the creation, they looked at it synthetically. They looked at the whole, the synthesis, and described the patterns and the rhythms of the whole, and then tried to understand the significance of that with the end in mind, with the telos in mind. So this is where you start to get a description of harmony and proportion and number symbolism. All of this is actually um, looking at the relationships between things. And this is the crucial thing that I think um, allows, modifies this simple idea of the whole is the sum of the parts. Well, the problem is that as soon as you introduce more parts, they are in relation with each other and they behave differently from the, the way they behave when they're on their own. And when you have four in relation, that is different from three. And the addition of each single and uh, one new part increases the number of relationships exponentially so you're modifying the thing hugely now that logic that we see with the spontaneous order or 
when, when I look at it, when I look at a culture, what I'm actually seeing is not something that is really pointing to um, this, the, the way that people behave, that's the, and the, the way they interrelate, mm-hmm. which of course is teleological. It's yeah. <laughs> the cause is not the past as the scientists would view it. It's right. It's exactly. what they're heading to, and it's a final cause. It's a final cause. Final cause. Now, I, I want to hesitate that say that 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 therefore is what Hayek is. Um, somehow is perceiving but maybe there's a connection there but before I hand it over to you just really to ask you to comment on this is that, that this is the, the nature of beauty yes that it, it it draws us in makes us desire what we see but then it speaks of something beyond itself which is actually eternal is God yes and and, and so the beautiful culture I'm going to suggest, therefore, is that which is, speaks most powerfully of our ultimate end. And th- that, that culture is, is, is therefore comprised of people who are acting freely and faithfully and in love. And so I'm going to, and therefore, that is the basis of the, spot, the, the, the economic order which, is, which matches that, which emerges in those same conditions is going to be the most uh, promote the greatest prosperity for people. Absolutely, I couldn't agree. I mean, what you have, what you have just presented, they're so they're so rich. There's so many. There's 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 so much insight there. The fundamental insight, which I uh, would like to riff on for a little bit, is just the, the way that the way that the human person is moved by an efficient cause versus a final call. Yes. Final causes are also real causes. A yeah. final cause is a cause, but it does not move. It does not have the dynamism of a cause the way that an efficient cause does. Yeah. When we try to say like, that you're right, the natural sciences world, the, the deception is that all of the causes are somehow behind us. Yeah. <laughs> the past, and if we simply know all of those causes in the past, then we'll know everything about the present state. Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is a, is a we're increasingly understanding more and more how that can be that can be a decept that can be a deception. The human person is moved towards his end, towards his final cause, by that type of drawing that the final cause has. That the goodness, the goodness, always goodness itself always has the nature of a final cause. Beauty always has the nature of a final cause, in the sense that it doesn't move, it doesn't somehow push. The agent from behind, but mm. it draws the agent from within. The agent is drawn to a final cause by his own nature, by its own nature. Its very nature is drawn, almost like a, like a type of reverse gravity, to the final cause. Goodness is a final cause. The common good, the common good, moves like a final cause, in the sense that the human person can never be moved moved by the common good by a type of coercion from behind type of efficiency from behind the 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 human person must be moved towards the common good and work towards the common good through a kind of final causality a desire for goodness which emerges from his free nature and, and and thrusts him towards the common good by thrusting him towards his own fulfillment at the same time 
because ultimately the common good, the common good is also the person, the individual person's good. It's not, it's not an alien good to his individual good, but by the person simply acting for his own good, or dare I say, self-interested behavior, he's also by that very nature being thrust towards the common good. Right, and this explains, I think, the, um, what just listening to you, uh, I live next to Oakland, um, and uh, you know this is a, a vast, bustling city, great place, that would love it. Um, but there are parts of that city that are dangerous, uh, the, the conditions in which people live, I would not want to be part of that. They, they are wealthy by the standards of any time in history, but they are not, there's something about that that would uh, worry me if I had to live there. I would be afraid, I think. Um, and the, what strikes me is that this is what happens when we neglect the full dignity of the person. If all we're catering to is um, material needs, or we're trying to provide an environment by coercion, which which is really government overstepping its mark. Now, the motivation is, is good. I'm not denying that the, the, those who, want, who are doing this genuinely want the good of people around them. And it's, it doesn't seem unreasonable what they're doing, but it, it's, once you start to um, restrict the full flourishing of the dignity of the person in the way in which you're trying to deal with the problems, it's going to manifest itself with further problems in some way. The, the, the capacity to interrelate lovingly is being restricted. And this, this is disastrous in many ways for, pe mm -hmm. for people involved. I, I agree. Uh, and and it's simply, simply because the good, good, in, good intentions, the good intentions of one person, can, uh, good, good intentions are wonderful. Good, good intentions are wonderful, but good intentions, good intentions cannot simply move human persons by coercion towards their own personal yeah. self. Um, or we, we can't, good, good intentions cannot force another person to be free. Good intentions cannot force another person to make the right decisions. Uh, the, the, good, the good intentions are wonderful and we have to encourage them, but good intentions have to also be married with simply, simply smart action. That is enlightened action, enlightened actions which are actions which take take into account the full nature of the human person, which uh, the the human person who is an an agent who by its very, his very nature can recognize the good, and and move himself towards the good through his own thinking. And so that's a good principle in our personal relationships as well. I'm thinking you know, we respect the freedom of others to make mistakes at times, but um, the. When we're talking about the role of government, it seems that what we're saying here is firm governments, but Very restrained. In other words, it understands where government is good and where it has no place. And it's certainly not as an economic agent. Well, this is this is the classical liberalism. <laughs> it's an insight within classical liberalism that I think I think emerges from the Christian tradition, uh, which is that government is very very important. Government should not be weak government, but government must be limited government. Limited, why, why limited? It's simply because of the type of power that government wields over, over people. Mm. The type of power that it has is fundamentally a, uh, a power of, of coercion. 
it's it's a it's it's the power that's that can that can uh, uh, it's uh, the, the power that the power that human positive law has which is a coercive coercive uh, power a power that can that can punish and because of the type of power that government has or the government never moves a person by a final cause because the government itself is a protector of the common good but the the modern hegelian state is not itself the common good the common good is not contained in one one government the con the, the the government itself fundamentally moves as a coercive efficient cause never itself as the common good never itself as the beauty of the whole which the human person uh is is drawn towards right uh, just a little word of explanation again that correct me if i'm saying this wrongly but um the Heg you refer to the hegelian state so this is a reference to the philosopher hegel yeah and his um contribution if i could use use that to uh politics and the understanding of the state is this view of um the state and society as an organism in itself and, and so he's likening it to the human body but not in the way that the church does in a way which actually lacks respect for the individual person that that sees it people just as like cells you know that that my skin sheds or something so it not i'm not saying that everybody within who holds this philosophy believes this but uh, it lead the natural extension of this is lack of consideration for human worth because the end justifies the means the the, the exactly with the, the modern the modern the modern contemporary industrialized technological state is basically the hegelian model where the state the state becomes the personification of of the collective and then the state is all the state oh. is basically all in in all the state is the is kind of the in, incarnation of the common good the, the modern industrialized state becomes the incarnation of of the whole the incarnation of society and only within that that whole only within the state then does the individual person even find his own meaning <laughs> that would yeah. ultimately in, in 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 hegel's hegel's philosophy um and i'm not i'm not a hegelian expert at all but uh, um, uh, the 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 contemporary industrialized mechanized state is an invention of the modern world, which none of the ancients even understood at all. So even in Thomas Aquinas's own day, you had you had the city states and the the kings who were who were 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 in control and who governed and promoted the common good, but in a way which which was virtually nothing like our modern industrialized state would today. Yeah. No, okay, I think we need to... Sorry, I, I interrupted you. I, I, um, we probably ought to sort of round off there. I, there's a number of directions that we can go. Um, for, actually, I just want to follow up briefly on what you said. Of course, this is why <coughs> socialism and con communism, are, uh, uh, which really hold the view that you've just described, Mm -hmm. um, philosophically, what they're condemned by the church, but it's contrary to the dignity of the human person. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even the soft forms, you know, that that, that, are, that what it's it it, it actually uh, causes harm to the people within it, even if in some way they're providing material needs uh, yeah. for this reason. Um, now, I think that that 
um, allows us then to um, start talking about what are the, the ends then for the Catholic economist a little bit more. So next time we thought we would come on to um, different responses. You talked about Thomas Aquinas. You're saying that the modern state wasn't envisaged by him. Some people would say, why don't we go back to that? Why don't we have the kings? And um, so we're going to talk about, uh, uh, well, I'm going to mention the word, we're going to talk about distributism, which to to some people seems like a, a, a desire to go back to that. Now, they would say definitely not. So we're going to talk about the good. And I use the word they, that probably gives the game away a little bit here. But, uh, but neither you nor I are, are, are distributors. But we want to look at that and just see what, um, within Catholics, uh, how people are responding to the things that we've articulated today. What, what are the different ways? And so we're going yeah, to... Next time, next time, we'll definitely... Like, I, I am not now a distributist. I don't, I don't, I, I once certainly would describe myself, have, would have described myself as a distributist simply because that is one, that is one way in the modern world that a lot of very, very conservative Catholics have reacted to the problems that they see in the modern state, with the modern state and modernized economies. It's one, it's one reaction and it has a lot of good things about it. Uh, I, but I also think it has it has shortcomings. And okay. That's, so that's that's what we're. I think that's what we'll do next time. The other, just for future reference, I think other subjects which we really can visit are first of all, don't worry, we're not going to just throw out this idea of self-interest and self-love in the way we've described it without coming back to that. That's a, definitely an area that needs exploring and clarifying. And then I think also. Um, this relationship between private property and the common good is is very important and and probably we can devote a whole conversation to that. So uh, I just want to say, Father, uh, thank you very much. We're going to close there. Um, Thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a real delight to talk to you today. Yeah, you too, David. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.